All right, cats and kittens, we are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. And today, I am sitting here through the power of Squadcast with a gentleman who, if you did improv comedy in Chicago in the late 80s to early 90s, every single person in that improv community will say that the best guy and the nicest guy and one of the funniest people on the planet is the guy I'm talking to today. He's a writer. He's a performer. You may have seen him on a Conan. You may have seen him on Colbert as Frankenstein, God, the devil, and a million other characters. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking to the legendary Mr. Brian Stack. Brandon, thank you so much for that unbelievably nice intro and for asking me to do this. Well, I will tell you that, that I, I am dead serious about this. Every single person, because you and I, you and I don't know each other very well. We're we're sort of Twitter friends, but we have so many really high quality friends in common. Um, all the Chicago people that have come out here that I've befriended over the years, the people that got to perform with you in the early days in Chicago, every single person says that the nicest guy on the planet is Brian Stack, the most generous. The most generous with comedy uh, and, and just an overall amazing guy. And I have known, I, I remember hearing you your name for the first time because uh, a young lady named Katie Kelly was my roommate way back in the in the early 90s. And I think that she went to IU uh, with you. And I remember when you got your job on Conan and she was like celebrating the fact that like one of the best people alive got a job uh, on Conan. So I've just always heard Brian Stack, Brian Stack, Brian Stack, Brian Stack, Brian Stack. And here you are today with me on the brando cast it's thank you so much and uh that means a lot to hear and uh and it is funny how we we didn't cross paths in the old days but we do know every everybody we know uh in common it's it's unbelievable like you know everybody i know (laughs) well i came i instead of staying in chicago after i graduated college i came to los angeles right i mean right away right after the 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 summer was over where a lot of my other friends uh, stayed in Chicago to to make a run at it. And a number of my friends were in a very legendary uh, Chicago improv show called Ed. And I believe that your lovely wife, Miriam, was a founding member of that group. That's is that right. true? She, I really, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't see that first cast of Ed, but I heard nothing but amazing things about it. Everybody raved about it to me. I remember my friend Hillary, who is in uh, Improv Olympic with me, she was kind of a she didn't toss out compliments very easily. And she was raving. She said, you got to go see the show, Ed. And uh, I was going through a little bit of a burnout period where I wasn't seeing or doing a lot of stuff at the time. And, um, but I, that's a big regret of mine was not going, but I did see the, the second cast and got to know Miriam later through John Lair, who was in Ed. Uh, and they were in the training center together. And then Miriam and I ended up in jazz Freddy together with former Ed members. So, I know very well how important and seminal Ed was, and we couldn't have done Jazz Freddy without the work that Ed did. Um, that's for sure. That's another thing. Uh, again, uh, all my friends, when when all of the Ed people eventually moved to Los Angeles, they lived, a bunch of them lived in the house that uh, Betsy Thomas and I ran in Hollywood. We had a, a wonderful craftsman home near Fountain and Fairfax. So when John Lear came to Los Angeles with, with, with Chris Hogan, they lived with us. Um, when Lauren Katz and Chris Reed, who I think was in Jazz Freddy with you, when they came to Los Angeles, they lived with us for a while. So, all, you know, again, all of these people coming to L.A., but they all said to a person, the best guy in Chicago is Brian Stack. So without further ado, now that I got you in again, Brian and I uh, have exchanged a lot of pleasantries over the years on Twitter uh, because we have, I think, the same exact taste in music. And we both love to post videos, whether it's of Emmy Lou Harris or old school Rolling Stone uh, videos. But the one band that Brian and I do share in common that I love so goddamn much. And Brian, excuse me while I put on my cheap 99 cent store readers because it's time to play the game of the Brandocast. Today on the Brandocast with Brian Stack, we're going to talk about the replacements. Alex Chilton playing in the background. The Replacements were an American rock band formed by four crazy Minneapolis teenagers back in 1979. They are considered one of the pioneers of alternative rock. For most of their career, the band was composed of guitarist and vocalist Paul Westerberg, guitarist Bob Stinson, bass guitarist Tommy Stinson, and drummer Chris 
Mars. The Matt's music was influenced by rock stars such as the Rolling Stones, The Faces, Big Star, Slade, Badfinger, and The Beatles, as well as punk rock bands like The Ramones, The New York Dolls, Dead Boys, and The Clash. Mr. Stack, your first thoughts about The Replacements. You know, it's funny. They're just... There's so many bands that I that I love, but I think the two that mean the most to me personally, maybe because they hit me at the right time of life, are uh, the Replacements and REM. You know, they're very different in many ways, but they there's just something they mean the most to me personally. I think I uh, their songs take me back to a time and place. I think I think a lot of times it's the music uh, you love when you're figuring yourself out or trying to. I'm, I still am trying to figure myself out, but um, I think they hit me at that time of life when I. Uh, was feeling kind of like the the, co- the college and post-collegiate years when you're f- kind of figuring things out and making a lot of mistakes and, you know, drinking too much and all that stuff. And uh, I think the replacements captured with humor and sadness, a great mix of the two, what all those feelings you're going through at that age and feeling directionless and not knowing, feeling really clueless and not knowing what to do and not knowing... Uh, that also that tendency to shoot yourself in the foot. I hate to admit this, but one thing I always, I always related to about the replacements was they their tendency towards self sabotage. You know, <laughs> and so many people I know have that unfortunate tendency where they they do sabotage themselves or they they're afraid to go for it all the way because they're afraid if they give it their full effort and fail, they they won't be able to handle it. So they they deliberately <laughs> wreck their own chances at things. And I got to admit, I've, I've done my share of that. So they're, but they also, in addition to just having great music, they, they, they had that sense of humor about feeling lost, you know, so you could, they could laugh at it. And, uh, he, Westbrook had the ability to make you laugh or cry sometimes in the same line, you know, <laughs> which is amazing. Where would you say that your uh, your most clueless period was geographically? Where were you in space and time when you were the most clueless and loving the replacement? I think it was probably my first few years in Chicago, and I first uh, I finished grad school at, at University of Wisconsin, and uh, went where I had started doing improv. And I got to Chicago, and I was working in an ad agency as my day job, but I I was feeling very lost about. Uh, I wanted to keep doing improv, but I never dared to dream that it would lead to anything career-wise. I, I hoped it would, but I was in those in those early classes and getting to know people and making a lot of my lifelong friends, people I still love to this day that you all know, you know, all those people. Uh, and um, we all kind of clung together like we were in a life raft, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, everybody was sort of, I think that's one of the reasons we're all so close is you you're in the trenches together and they really did feel like trenches. <laughs> and uh, so I think it was those early years in particular in Chicago. Like I first, I remember seeing the replacements the year after I got the year I actually moved to the city after grad school. And I saw them at the Aragon ballroom. And that was a really, to this day, one of the best concerts I've ever seen. And you were there, I know. We've exchanged pleasantries on Twitter over that. And I was in the second row. It's, it's, it, you just said it. It's one of the, my favorite shows of all time. The Slammin' Watusis. I think the Slammin' Watusis were from Madison. I don't know. I don't remember them being, they, they could have been. I don't remember them playing around. I don't remember the name around Madison. Uh, I know there was like the Tar Babies and other bands that were big around Madison and uh, Killdozer and stuff like that. But, uh, God, I can't believe you were in the second row. I was pretty far back, unfortunately, but it was still awesome. Well, back then, in the, in the year 1989, uh, this gentleman right here uh, was very guilty of trying to dress uh, like Paul. I mean, he was he was my idol uh, through my college years. Uh, and so I, I don't think I went a day without wearing ripped jeans and flannel shirts and, and, and just looking shambolic with the hair all over uh-huh. the place. Uh, that was sort of the image that I wanted to perpetrate as I was going through school. It was too hard to dress like Tommy Stinson because that required getting like a really kick-ass tuxedo jacket from a yeah. thrift store uh, down in Chicago and 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 perfect creeper shoes from the alley on Belmont. But um, they were so critically important to me. And that night was so wonderful. Uh, I think I've said this on the podcast before. As soon as the show was over, I remember the Ramones teenage lobotomy came on and the, and the place kind of had a little final explosion of energy because everyone realized that the show was over. They they're mad about that. Cause we just want more, but we also love the Ramones song. And then I got punched in the back of the oh head 
by just some idiot Chicago idiot behind me. But I, I kind of didn't care because it just felt like I got like a really kind of fun souvenir from the show. Like there was no like, Hey man, you're a, Hey man, calm down. There was no like animosity. It was like, all right, I got punched in a replacement show. I'm going to take this with me. And then we went to the green mill afterwards oh, and, uh, and process. That's a, that. that's a great place to go. I saw some great shows there too. I saw Jeff Buckley there a couple times before he, before uh, grace became a big album and stuff. I just, I've been a fan of his dad, Tim Buckley and um, the green mill, you know, that's a place I, I'm so glad it's still there and that it never changes. There's so much about Chicago um, that that never changes. I, I my favorite thing is to walk into a place that feels like it's perpetually 1983. There's something about that that's just oddly comforting. I I struggle with the modern world. I feel like I was born in the wrong um, period of time as far as that's concerned. So you finish grad school in in Madison and you decide to go to Chicago what drew you to advertising did you want to take your creative talents and put that into uh, a career that 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 could capitalize on your sense of humor or the way that you looked at the world what 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 brought you to you know I honestly didn't know what what to do and uh, I felt like I studied you know telecommunications and psychology and uh, the psychology the psychological side of communications and stuff um, in school but I was really just looking to get a job to kind of pay for my apartment and, and get just just make a living while I did improv where we made no money. So um, I kind of just was founding, you know, flailing around for a few months just looking for a job. And uh, that just kind of happened to be what I fell into. I didn't have an ad portfolio or anything like that. I ended up moving into the creative side two years in, but um, I was nervous about even trying to approach the creative people about trying that. But I ended up asking after a couple of years, I got to know some of the creative people and they were, they were really great. And, um, I said, you know, Hey, would it be okay if I tried my hand at some radio spots in my own time? And they, one of them sold and then they decided to kind of gradually slide me into the creative side where I was for two years before getting hired at second city. But I'm grateful for that time. And it, it, it gave me a weird kind of respect for how hard it is to do good ads. Because and my sister still works in advertising. And um, when you see a really, when, to this day, when I see a really good ad or hear a really good ad on the radio, I'm like, wow, they jumped through a lot of hoops to make that happen. Because <laughs> you have to get all the stuff in that the clients want, but you also have to try to make it entertaining. And it is, it's quite a high wire act, you know, to, <laughs> to walk that line. And I, I do have a, uh, a lot of respect for people that manage to pull that off. <laughs> like when you see a good ad, like when I see Geico ads or something, I'm like, that, that's hard to do. <laughs> Did you remember what that ad was? That the 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 first ad that you got I to do, work it was on for Kroger, and it was called Mister Romance. It was for a Valentine's Day promotion, <laughs> and I was so excited because I got to go into the recording studio when the actors were working. It was Larry Moran, the funny voice man, who did every commercial in Chicago. He was like the king. He would actually throw a boat party every summer for people who hired him that year, and he had that much. He was that successful, <laughs> and Craig Brawley was the other guy. And uh, I remember it really clearly, and I remember just listening to it on a cassette tape and going, "I can't believe this! Something I wrote is on the radio. This is weird." So it wasn't much of a spot; it was just a little kind of dialogue spot. Uh, but it was very exciting at the time for me to to do something and have it actually go out on the airwaves even in a regional market. You know. I think our mutual friend, Laura Kraft, was she uh, working at that same ad agency? That Laura, she that, she's the queen of the small world uh, for me because uh, she was in my, briefly in an improv group with me in, as an undergrad at Indiana University. We never ended up performing in front of people, but and she was a freshman and I was a senior. And, um, and then she ended up working in an ad agency one floor below me in the Neiman Marcus building there by Water Tower. And then I also, she ended up being friends with people who lived in the house I lived in on Racine. I come home one day and she's sitting on my front stoop and I'm like, Laura, what are you doing here? She's like, oh, I'm friends with your neighbors upstairs. And I found out later David Schwimmer had lived in that apartment up above us, but I never met him. Wait, was that at, was, was that at Wrightwood? It was school in Racine? in Racine. Oh, school in Racine. Yeah, okay. Wrightwood in Racine. I remember going to some parties over there, like I think, uh, Jeff Barr and some other people lived over there. I can't remember. 
Um, this will mean nothing except for the people who are friends with me on the show. Jeff Barr lived there. Carlos Jacot lived there. John Lear right. lived at Wrightwood. Uh, a, a guy named Rick Qualitine lived at Wrightwood. Our house in Chicago that Betsy Thomas and I had, we our aesthetic was the Wrightwood aesthetic because when we would go to Chicago, we would crash at that exact apartment, oh, okay. uh, which which everyone referred to as Wrightwood, and they called our house in Hollywood Ogden because it was on Ogden and oh, Fountain. Got it. Okay, uh, so that was the my one. You're you're kind of describing the life that I wanted to be living in Chicago. Like I had I had door A and door B after I graduated, and door door A was coming to Los Angeles. There was a girl I wanted to chase. There were other friends who wanted to move out here. There was already a Northwestern community that was really easy to slide into. But door B was staying in Chicago and making a run as an actor because I was a theater major in school and living in those apartments and getting those weird jobs and trying to make a run at Second City or Improv Olympic because I already had friends that were doing that. So it's like I just love hearing stories of you know people. I just had Matt Walsh on this. Podcast. So again, we we're in the same bars at the same time without really knowing it. Uh, but then, you know, you guys have this Chicago existence that I, I, I sort of have a romance. Uh, I, I sort of have a, a romantic view about uh, and a little bit of jealousy. The band's first album, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, was released on Twin Tone Records in August of 1981 and received positive reviews in local fanzines. The album contained the band's first single, I'm in Trouble, and the song, Something to Do, an homage to another legendary Minneapolis punk band, Husker Du. Sometime in late 1981, the replacements played a song called Kids Don't Follow. Twin Tone founder and band manager Peter Jesperson thought it sounded like a hit and quickly pushed the band to record their eight-song EP, Stink. And again, we're listening to Kids Don't Follow. I grew up, uh, my teenage years were spent in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico is a heavy metal town. Uh, we had two rock stations, Rock 108 and 94 Rock. And they would play Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Clapton, The Doors. But they would mix that with Judas Priest, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, Van Halen. And so the older I got, the better my taste got. And the replacements came to me, I would say, 84. And the thing that drew me to them was their sort of punk rock energy because it, it sort of matches it sort of matches the the energy of heavy metal for me. So they were a real transition for me from metal to post punk, which becomes the music that I love, in, including Husker Du. And I will say this is a long rambling way to say that one of the greatest things about living in Chicago in the mid eighties uh, was the access to these bands and all the wonderful places to see post-punk bands in Chicago. There was really nothing like all these incredible Midwest bands that would come to play at the Riviera, the Aragon, the Cabaret Metro. It's, it was just such a, I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to absorb all this stuff. Now you're a Midwestern guy. Were you going to see shows when you went to IU or even when you grew up in Chicago? Now and then, like before, I, I wasn't, I wish I could have seen more when I was actually in high school and stuff. The first concert I saw was my senior year in high school. I saw Van Halen at the UIC Pavilion and it was fantastic. It was, uh, you know, with Diamond Dave, of course. And, um, and I was deaf for three days. It was just, <laughs> you're head shatteringly loud. Um, but it was a great show. And uh, I wish I'd seen more when I was younger. When I got to college, I did see some shows. Like I saw R.E.M. at Indiana University. And that was one of still one of my favorite memories of any concert I've seen. The 10,000 Maniacs opened up for him. And I had never heard of them before. It was 85. And it was the Fables of the Reconstruction Tour. And it was that was fantastic. And um, then I remember seeing a couple of the R.E.M. guys my senior year at IU. They came back to town to record Life's Rich Pageant at Mellencamp's studio. And I saw them at a Buddy Guy Junior Wells show that I'd gone to see. And I just saw Bill Berry and Mike Mills walk in. And I was like, I recognized them immediately from like the Murmur cover and from just being a fan. And, uh, but it wasn't, I did see a couple shows, uh, a few shows when I was um, in college and grad school, but I wish I'd seen more. I saw so many in Chicago though, once I, I moved there, you know, in uh, early 89 and I was there till 97 and I, I, I have a lot of great memories of shows I saw during those years. Well, my problem was um, rather than focusing on craft and career 
and things that might take you far in life, I was constantly going to shows. That was so the my my emotional math was always does uh, this thing that I should be doing right now does it interfere with concert going? And if the answer is yes, well then fuck <laughs> I totally that. Totally respect so, that. <laughs> it'll take it'll take you to interesting places. I can say that I've seen everybody, but um, you know I wasn't uh, I wasn't so disciplined back in the day. And I remember when. You know that time in life in your in your early and mid and late twenties when it seems like people are getting serious. Yeah, yeah. And and then you have a friend who sells a thing, or you have a friend who gets a gig on a thing, or you have a friend who just goes up to the next level, and you're like, "Hey, wait a minute! What's everybody doing? Come on, Lollapalooza is coming up. We have to fucking go to that. What are you guys doing? Everybody, calm the fuck down. Pump the brakes." I must say, most of the guys I tended to hang out with though were way too passive kind of like i was you know we were just waiting for something to happen and like every group i ever got involved in uh i got to admit i was asked to get involved when i was along for the ride i never had the kind of drive to start a group and make stuff happen so i was lucky to fall in with some great people like the jazz freddy group and stuff uh, where i met my wife miriam and everything and a lot of other lifelong friends but um but most of my most of the people I hung out with, we were we were very passive and waiting for things to happen. And we went to a lot of shows and drank too much beer and all that stuff. And um, but there were those rare exceptions. Like I was always fascinated by guys like John Favreau, who he was in one of the groups I was in. But I I he was like another species to me. I was like, wow, he's got a drive that I don't even understand. And and in retrospect, it was it got him really far. But I remember he had a pager, and I remember. <laughs> He was the first improviser I knew that had a pager. And I remember thinking, why would an improviser need a pager? Who would ever want to get in touch with us? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Who would ever want to hire us or do anything professional with us? And I, looking back, I'm like, he was just always thinking ahead. And, you know, he was it was hard for me to relate to him on any level. But I also admired the drive he had. You know, um, Mitch Rouse had had a good drive, too. He always seemed like but most of us were we're uh, kind of waiting for things to happen, you know, and uh, sometimes some things did, thankfully, but I definitely relate to your approach <laughs> in those days. Well, I think, I think I, I, I'm guilty of extending the summer after college for about, oh, I would say 18 years. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely felt like that. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's my, that was my issue. The one thing I want to say, and you're the perfect person to bring this up. I've said this on the show. I've said this to Matt Walsh. I've said this to Mitch Rouse. I've said this to Laura Kraft. The, the group of people that were collected in Chicago in the late 80s into the late 90s doing improv comedy who then go on. Uh, to do it professionally is it insane. Is. It, you know, there's always waves of comedy. There's always pockets of scenes around the country. You know, if you look at modern comedy, going back to the fifties, going back to the compass players and the, the original second city and all the things that influence us, whether it's Monty Python or um, uh, Nichols and may or whatever it is, there's still an insane group of people in Chicago during this period of time. And I would say the foundation of modern comedy is so rooted in your experience there uh it's it's you it's adam mckay it's favreau it's Teresa mulligan it's matt walsh it's amy poehler it's tina fey i mean it's on and on and on and on and now it's ike Barinholtz and jason sudeikis and it's just uh, it's just staggering to me and one of my favorite things that you will do every once in a while on twitter is you will post old school photos of of teams of improv teams that contain all these fabulous people. And, and, and I think that's a, a lot, that's a long way of saying maybe you should publish a I book. Wish, if you have I enough wish photos, I had more like I'm jealous of the kids today who have everything documented on their phones and hundreds of phones. Most of my photos are from like five days of my life <laughs> or, or group yeah. photos that someone gave me or something like there are certain things I'll say. Like I remember Adam McKay, I have a, I have an old flyer of Adam's face uh, when, virtual reality show was going to go up and it said adam mckay will kill himself at this show this friday no joke <laughs> and i still have that flyer because it made me laugh so hard i was amazed i was in a box and i was like i saved it just because it made me laugh you know and um i was just kind of amazed at the but it was amazing the people that were around back then and like when adam would leave our touring company neil flynn would come in or you know uh i got to work with people like Susie nakamura and and pat finn and all these people and even in Madison, it was crazy because 
when you're when you're seeing people on a local level, like Chris Farley was in my very first improv group at at the Arc Theater in Madison. And I remember I was so new and I had no perspective on the industry. I didn't understand show business at all, obviously. But I remember thinking, am I crazier? Is this guy funnier than people I see in the movies and TV? And everyone had that reaction when they saw him, even in little bars around Madison. And it was like that in Chicago, too. You'd watch someone like Carell. Like, I remember Steve Carell, I, before I worked at Second City, I remember seeing him in a 7-Eleven parking lot at Belmont and Racine, and he had his bicycle. <laughs> and I'll never forget this. He probably thought I was coming out of the dark to mug him. Because I came out of the shadows, like I just had to, I, I rarely did this, but I went up and I go, hey man, I just want to say you're really great. You're, and he was super nice about it. And I never expected to ever meet him personally or know. And then his wife, future wife, Nancy ended up in our touring company and I got to know them later. But, um, but at the time I was just a, a geeking out fan, you know, but to me, they were already stars. You know, Colbert was a star. Amy Sedaris was a star. Uh, all these people that you saw on the local stages. And then there are people that were as big to us as any of them, like Joe List, who isn't a big star today, uh, but I think he should be. You know, he's one of those guys who was as funny as anybody. And um, so it was just a privilege looking back to that our local entertainment was these incredible people, you know. And Mick Napier, who had gone to college with me, and I owe Mick... Just real quick as a tangent, I owe Mick more than I can say because Mick, uh, Mick had a improv group at Indiana University that I didn't have the guts to audition for, and um, but he's the one that told me about Improv Olympic. And um, if I hadn't taken that class with Sharna after I graduated college that summer, I would never have tried it in Madison. You know, I would never have had the guts, and I fell totally in love with it that summer. Uh, so Mick might, in in many ways, I. I'd embarrass him saying this, uh, even though I've told him <laughs> this to his face. He's in some ways one of the most important people in my entire life because I think he changed the entire course of my life. That's incredible. Did you ever did you throw in for the annoyance with the annoyance theater then? A mixed That's annoyance one of theater. The odd things looking back that I I went to all their shows, but I never did anything at the annoyance, and I don't. Re- looking back, it's kind of baffling to me as to why. I guess I was too, at the time I had my day job and I was doing improv Olympic and second city classes and maybe it felt like it was too much or I didn't have time, but I went to all their shows. Like I remember the first night they did the real live Brady bunch. <laughs> I could tell right away every, the room just exploded with laughter watching it. And I could tell it was just a very, and they were kind of caught off guard by the reaction because it was kind of just a, they thought maybe be a one-off show. And I said to Mick afterwards, I said, Mick, did you guys have to get the rights to do these scripts on stage? And Mick <laughs> took a drag from his cigarette. And he goes, oh, this is totally illegal. <laughs> but, you know, they never thought, who's going to hear about a little show in Chicago? And they ended up eventually having to make a deal with Sherwood Schwartz. That <laughs> and it became this huge thing. And they took it on the road to New York and L.A. And that ended up being how Andy Richter met Conan because he was doing. And it's amazing what these little shows can lead to, you know. Well, that, I, that little show led to Katie Kelly moving into our house in uh, in Hollywood because she was in the second group of that uh, of the group that came to Los Angeles to do uh, real life well, Brady awesome. Bunch, and so we saw we saw that when that came here. I the the experience that I had, you know, when you you mentioned, uh, see, you know, seeing uh, Chris Farley when he was young and knowing like that guy's going somewhere. I had that experience with Jack Black oh, wow. here in Hollywood. I bet, yeah, because the. The, the Chicago the Chicago community that already existed in LA before I got here, which includes old school Second City people and Steppenwolf people and and just regular uh, Chicago actors and DePaul alumni and Northwestern alumni, it's fully formed world. It cross pollinated with the Actors Gang, and that was the that was the acting company that Jack Black, a very young Jack Black, Tim was Robbins in. and them, right? I, Tim Robbins. That's his his the group that he started at UCLA. And, and so I think it was Midsummer Night's Dream and, and, uh, Jack was puck or whatever. And, and everyone knew you just saw it immediately that the talent, the charisma, the, the, the specialness was just there right away. And the first time I met him, he was rifling through my CDs at a party at wow. our house. Cause again, we had that, we had that house that, that was the house that everyone would go to after plays or shows or just special events or whatever, we would always have the after party at our house. And I see this little sort of long haired troll rifling through my CDs. And I walked up and uh, I, I said, uh, uh, dude, what are you doing? And I knew who he was, but I was like, what are you, what are you doing? And he goes, dude, <laughs> checking out the deal. 
and we became we became friends back then. But he was the first time I ever saw Tenacious D was um, mind blowing. And there were there were maybe six people in the audience at a place called Pedro's on Vermont, and uh, two of those people were Ben Stiller and Andy Dick. Hootenanny was released in April of 1983. It was a more mature album than Stink and Sorry Ma, and saw Westerberg expand his songwriting capabilities on songs like Within Your Reach and the college rock classic Color Me Impressed. Robert Criscow of The Village Voice deemed it the most critically independent album of 1983. What took you from Chicago to New York? I was getting hired at Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And in fact, I actually thought it was going to be for 13 weeks. Uh, Tommy Blacha, who one of the funniest guys I've ever met, uh, who was writing at Conan, had been a Chicago guy. And he broke his leg. He was writing for Conan, and he couldn't even come in. He was was so incapacitated that they wanted to bring someone out for 13 weeks. And they asked me to send in some ideas. And luckily, they liked him enough to bring me out for that 13 weeks. But I thought I was going back. I had a little sublet. And... um, Thankfully, they liked the stuff I was doing, and and I think NBC at the time was doing well enough. They were like, we can keep a guy who's making Writers Guild minimum, you know. <laughs> we can. It seemed like a drop in the bucket. It was like bagel money at the time. So I think uh, it ended up going from thirteen weeks to eighteen years, which is really crazy. But um, I was, I was, I thought I was going back, and um, and I'm very incredibly grateful that they let me stay on after that first three months, uh, and that I got to work with so many fantastic people what do you do when you get to new york as a young guy you still have a sublet like what do you remember like those first places that you lived in when you you were in new york we had a little sublet on west 70th street for uh just a couple months and then i lived at 30th and madison for a couple years and then we lived up on west 86th street for three years before moving out to the suburbs we had two kids at that point miriam and i but i remember the first thing i did the first night i got to new york Miriam wasn't with me yet, and uh, I walked down to, it was a Sunday night, and I walked down to, to where they do ASCAT at Solo Arts, and they were out of town for some reason, but I remember those early days of doing ASCAT with those guys, with with Amy and, and Matt Walsh and um, Matt Besser and Ian Roberts and, and all the old Chicago crew, that kind of, that made our landing in New York so much easier, because it would have been kind of a scary, intimidating place to just land in coming from Chicago if we didn't already have this uh, network of people there that we loved from Chicago. Like, I was bummed when the UCB left Chicago. Amy was offered a slot in our cast at Second City, and they I admired them so much for going off to New York with no guarantees. They were like, we're going to go do a sketch show on stage and try to get a sketch show on TV, and they did. And I still, to this day, salute them for that, because that took a lot of guts. Move it to New York where it's, you know, you can't afford rent and finding a way to make a go of it. And uh, so, but then when we got to New York, the fact that they were there was such, so great. And those early ass cats, like Colbert did some, and I remember Adam doing some and uh, McKay and, and all those guys. And then meeting some of the local New York people that I didn't know was wonderful too. But those early, that that's the first time I actually ever saw Jack Black. He was in the audience at solo arts once and I didn't know his name. I just knew his face. And I remember saying, oh, that's that guy who was in Dead Man Walking in uh, X-Files. He's really, he, that guy's great. He just did have that special quality about him. And I remember Brian McCann saying, oh, yeah, that's Jack Black. And that's the first time I ever heard his name. Describe for people who, who might not know what ASCAP oh, is. ASCAP actually uh, is the same format as our Armando shows were in Chicago. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, it was, uh, Adam McKay and Dave Keckner. Uh, had the idea to start a show up with all of us in Chicago. They Again, I was just lucky enough to be invited to be part of it. But they had the idea of, uh, you have a monologist, and it, initially it was Armando Diaz. A lot of people don't know Armando's a real person. <laughs> they just think it's like the Monty Python name or something for a show. But it was basically, uh, they because Armando's kind of a self-effacing, humble guy, they thought, what if we make Armando the godhead of this show? Like, he's going to be like the main driving force of the show. He'll tell stories and then we do improv scenes off of his stories. And so when UCB went to uh, New York the year after we started the Armando show in Chicago, they wanted to keep doing it. And I think the name ASCAT originally came, if, if I remember hearing that Horatio Sands, uh, who we all love, um, 
he was in our cast at Second City too. Horatio, I think one night a show was going completely off the rails and they just started from the wings saying, ask cat, like as a nonsense word, <laughs> like just because the show was already so uh, batshit crazy that this nonsense word just started coming out of their mouths. And uh, that's what I heard the origin was. But um, ask cat is basically, you know, a monologist coming out, telling stories uh, that inspire improv scenes that come back and connect and, um, and it always works best, as you know, when it, when the stories are true and honest, as opposed to someone up there telling jokes. When the stories are honest, they don't even necessarily have to be funny stories. They can inspire really funny scenes as long as they're honest and, and real. That was basically what we did on Sunday nights. It was It was just the best. You'd go down on Sunday night, and I did that for so many years, and my wife Miriam did it for many years, and sometimes it would be one or the other of us. But sometimes we got to do it together. But it was always such a treat to go down there on a Sunday night and just do ASCAT. Sometimes we would do two shows on Sunday. And then uh, during the Del Close Marathon, sometimes we'd do three. But it was uh, always just a blast. And the monologists they got, in the early days, I remember some of them were like Janine Garofalo and Andy Richter did it a lot. Sometimes he would improvise with us too. But um, sometimes the best monologists would be these uh, writers that were just magazine writers or weird activists that like to antagonize Giuliani or something, <laughs> you know, that they would Besser would meet some guy and say, Hey, this guy would be fun. Yeah. They, they were always such a, a treat to do. And, uh, I've always loved doing them even when I was out in LA, but those early, I got to say those early days in New York were, I still have a special fondness for those ASCAT days. That's amazing. I lucked out because when they finally opened up the improv Olympic theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and did Armando on Monday nights. Um, we would all hang out at the bar, the friends of people who were in the show. Betsy and I would would go every Monday because her husband Adrian Winter would perform sure, in the Armando Adrian. show. And I I I would always get to be the host if the real host didn't oh, show up. Oh, that's great! I bet you'd be great. I wish I could have so, done one with you. <laughs> yeah, well, it, but again, it, it just had to be like uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt didn't show up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So then they would just either grab me or Betsy and then would go and, and, and do the show. And, and it was, I always got a, an unbelievable kick out of that. All right. When you hear, I will dare by the replacements, you must know that uh, I will put this in my top three songs of all time. By the time the replacements started recording their fourth album, they'd grown tired of playing loud and fast. So the new material placed more of a focus on songwriting. Let It Be was released in October of 1984 to instant critical acclaim. Robert Christgau gave the album an A+, and Seattle Rocket critic Bruce Pavitt called Let It Be mature, diverse rock that could very well shoot these regional boys into the national mainstream. In 1989, Let It Be was ranked number 15 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Albums of the 80s. And I... I would put that in the top three. Like I said, that, that top three albums of all time for me is one of the most beautiful, poetic uh, album covers in the history of rock. But, um, you know, that's an incredible city. That was one of the, my favorite things about going to school in the Midwest was being able to travel around to all those cities. And again, going back to the original point of me being more focused on rock than learning how to do or learning how to write or perform comedy. Uh, we would make field trips to go uh, see bands up at First uh, Avenue and Seventh Street Entry in Minneapolis. So I got to see Soul Asylum up there. One of the best shows I've, I've ever seen in my life was Soul Asylum at the Student Union in Madison, Wisconsin in 1988. Oh, I think maybe beginning of 89, but I think 1988. And it's another night I will never forget because, good God, you know better than I, uh, Wisconsin students know how to party. <laughs> And and I think beers in the um, the student union were and the Rothskeller yeah, yeah, is that the name the of the student? There. That's a okay. So I think that they were like fifty cents or something right. like completely ri- completely ridiculous. And Soul Asylum was at the height of their power. This is long before they cheesed they, out. They are. Um, I, I gotta say, yeah, they're they're at their at their peak. They were they were one of the best live bands you could see. I only saw them once. It was at the Riviera, um, but. Um, they they were great. The first, you know, it's odd. The first person I ever heard mention their name was was Bob Odenkirk because he was in the main stage cast at um at Second City at the time, and it was downstairs at that crappy U.S. Blues bar, you know. And he was down there with Tim O'Malley and some other people, and people were talking about the replacements. And he said, "Have you guys heard Soul Asylum?" 
And I, I had heard the name, but uh, I remember that was the first time uh, I'd heard anybody talk about how good they were. And um, he was, uh, I didn't really know Bob at all, but he was just kind of, he, it, it, you could tell he was just a guy who wanted to pass something along to some people that he thought would appreciate it. And uh, I, I did appreciate it. And, um, and he was right. They, they were uh, a fantastic live band. And there was always that rumor that Dave Perner was the one who yelled, Hey, fuck you, man, to the cops at the beginning of Kids Don't Follow. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Who else were you into in the 80s? What other bands did you, you know, love? You know, it's funny. Uh, until I got to Madison, my a lot of my tastes were a little bit, because I grew up in suburban Chicago, a lot of my tastes were very mainstream because I, I listened to stations like WLUP where they would play a lot of, you know, classic rock. So I always loved things like Van Halen and the Stones. And, and I still love all that stuff. But um, I was very sheltered in terms of, like, until I heard like REM, like when I was uh, a teenager, I that opened my horizons, that expanded my horizons hugely because it made me wonder what else was out there that they were keeping from me. You know, I was like, this is amazing. Uh, what else is out there? So that opened the doors for a lot of other stuff. Um, and I worked at the college radio station and sometimes I would get a request for someone I'd never heard of. Like I remember getting a request for the butthole surfers. <laughs> And I was like, the, I just started laughing. I was like, the butthole surfers. All right, I'll look for it. <laughs> and it was the single, The Shah Sleeps in Lee Harvey's Grave. And I remember playing it. And I was like, wow, this is this is unlike anything I've ever heard in my life. But it's cracking me up. And it's it's totally original. And um, I remember hearing the Beastie Boys for the first time, their Cookie Puss single. The college radio station, we had like six listeners tops, I think. Um, but it was uh, that expanded it a little bit. When I got to Madison, though, one of my roommates, Mike, uh, was from Minneapolis, and he he would play the replacements and uh, weird bands like the Residents, and like I was I wasn't as into that that stuff, but I was totally into the replacements, and um, he would play things like Richard Thompson, and so I I remember getting into a lot more stuff that I still love. During those two years in Madison, were very formative for me. You know, there was this little record store, B-Side Records, and I'd go in and they'd, it was like the record store in High Fidelity, you know, where the guys were a little intimidating <laughs> and they were big music snobs, yeah. but they had all these amazing imports and you'd go in and you'd hear a song and you're like, what is this? And they're like, they'd kind of grudgingly tell you, like, you should have known this already, but this, is, you know, and uh, so I, I, I learned so much during those two years and then in my early days in Chicago. I wish I'd gone up to Minneapolis to see shows. I never road tripped up there. Uh, that's awesome that you went to First Avenue and everything. Um, I lucked out because I had a friend named Matt Sweeney in college who went on to become a hired gun guitar player. He was in a whole bunch mm -hmm. of bands. Uh, he's played with Iggy Pop and Neil Diamond and 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 Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Um, he's just an incredible guitar player, but I met him very young and he was the guy who said, okay, you like rats, Van Halen, ACDC. Let me point your vision over this way. And let me show you this world of post-punk. And he's the guy with my group of friends who really like kicked the doors open. And he took us to clubs in Chicago where we needed to be going. You know, my freshman year at school was, 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 I had an absolute blast and I, I explored the city of Chicago in, in every way I possibly could. But it was Matt Sweeney who finally said, um, we're going to a place called Batteries Not Included tonight, or we're going to a place called Exit tonight. And here's this band Sonic Youth that you should be listening to. And here's Soul Asylum. You should love these guys. Let It Be attracted the attention of major record labels. And the Mats eventually signed with Sire subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Sirehead Seymour Stein recruited Tommy Ramone to produce their first major label record. Tim was released in October of 1985 and it includes a number of Matt's classics like Kiss Me on the Bus, Here Comes the Regular, and Bastards of Young. The band spent the remainder of 1985 and a good chunk of 1986 touring behind Tim. Now I'm going to tell a story that I think Brian knows incredibly well, and he's probably been in this exact space many times. In mid-January of 1986, the replacements received a last-minute request to appear as the musical guests on Saturday Night Live, replacing the Pointer Sisters, who had been forced to cancel only days before the show. They performed Kiss Me on the Bus while completely drunk, and after playing an out-of-tune Bastards of Young, during which Westerberg screamed, Come on, fucker, at Bob Stinson, they returned to the stage wearing each other's clothing. As a result of their alcoholic performance on SNL, producer Lorne Michaels 
ban them for forever returning to the show. Westerberg fired Bo- guitarist Bob Stinson later that year, largely due to Stinson's alcohol and drug abuse, and he also fired manager Peter Jesperson. This was sort of the beginning of the end for the replacements. I just love the story of them being on uh, Saturday Night Live, which is so well chronicled in Trouble Boys, drinking all day long while locked away somewhere in 30 Rock, waiting to, to go on national television. It pops up on YouTube every once in a while, but you, you mentioned earlier, this is a band that self-sabotages, and this is probably the best example of the replacement self-sabotaging. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that uh, makes them both endearing and heartbreaking, you know, because I think that they, the fact that they uh, played up the lovable loser thing, you know, uh, to a fault sometimes, you know, got, I think it got in the way of them being bigger, you know, as big as they should have been, you know, but, um, but it's also part of their DNA and what made their song so great and from the heart was that they uh, they had all that insecurity and all that self-loathing and stuff rooted in their their backgrounds and their the music they loved and um, but I always there is a part of me that always wished they'd um, they hadn't shot themselves in the foot and that they had sold as many records as they deserved to um, and that that SNL performance is a classic example of just you guys couldn't you just hold it together and just <laughs> Because <laughs> when when I saw them live, as you did, you know, I, I was lucky enough to never see one of their train wreck shows, which also would have been very entertaining. But um, I saw them the three times I saw them, they were on. They were on even the last one, the Grant Park show, their their breakup show. It wasn't as good as the other two, the the two Aragon shows I saw, but they were still they were still great. And um, like I never saw any of those shows where they would fall off the stage and uh you know part of me wishes i'd experience that just to to have it as like a reference point but um but the, the shows i did see them were two of them were two of the best concerts i've ever seen were you there at poplar creek when they opened up for tom petty on the full mourn tour i wasn't and i wish i'd gone to that my sister went to that show and she said um they were really good uh but i love what westerberg said about that tour you probably heard this where he said it on xrt uh, in an interview, he said, um, we went into that tour with the totally wrong attitude. Instead of let's win these people over, it was on your knees, you bastards. The mighty mats have arrived. <laughs> so, so they went in thinking, uh, now we're, you know, and so they, uh, they feel like they kind of blew that opportunity, but I have some bootlegs of that tour, like the, and that, and, and some of the versions of songs like left of the dial and stuff on those bootlegs sound even better than they do on Tim, you know, they're without all that kind of muddy production um even though i loved him i think it's a little muddy sounding you know um still great but um i think the song sound even better live on the bootlegs well that show at papa creek was so weird because we we got there we went there to see the replacements i mean I, I love tom petty but i was there that night to see the replacements so my friends and i get out there early and i would say the place was a third full for their show May, a, I believe it. maybe uh, because you know, you know better than I what the suburban Chicago crowd is and what they want. So they they're not there for the shambolic replacements. They're there for the loop, Tom Petty, Bob Seeger, Springsteen, Zeppelin. <laughs> who are these guys who kind of look like girls fucking dressed in, you know, whatever you know, it was just and the crowd gave them nothing. And and those mm-hmm. of us who were who were ravenous replacements fans, we couldn't fill the place. We could not fill Poplar Creek up with enough energy to give it back to them. And I think that they were, I think that they were really bummed that night. Let me ask you one last question while I got you. You're back in New York. You're working on Colbert. How are you uh, enjoying New York on this uh, second round uh, career wise? Just being back because you were here in LA for a while working on Conan, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I loved all the years I spent at Conan. uh, I had 12 in New York and then six in LA. Um, and I, I miss all those people very much. But Stephen was always one of those guys I'd I'd hope to work with in some way, you know, at some point. He was always one of our favorites in Chicago, and he was always a really great guy in addition to being brilliant. And um, so, and my family been kind of feeling a pullback to New York. Uh, I liked L.A. Uh, quite a bit, but we'd kind of been feeling a pullback here. And um so I was grateful to get the opportunity to come back and, and work with Steven. And, and uh, it's been a challenge because political satire was never like my strong suit by a, by a long shot. <laughs> you know, most of the stuff I 
have a tendency to write or what comes out of my brain naturally is very apolitical and, and more on the silly side or um, old old time characters and things like that. Um, but it's been an interesting challenge and I've learned a lot and uh, I just try to contribute how I can, you know. And uh, when nobody saw Trump coming, like when I took the job in 2015, you know, <laughs> nobody obviously saw any of this coming. So uh, so I'm happy to have the challenge of trying to to write that kind of material, even if it's not my natural strong suit. You know, I, when people said, well, Trump is going to be great for artists. Trump is going to be great for comedians. It's like, well, e- yeah, but the rest of it is fucking terrifying. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of an old uh I think Anthony Holland in the early days of Second City said to the audience, well, we all know how much satire did to stop the rise of Nazi Germany. You know, I think there's there's times where, you know, it is our, it's our job to try to find laughs in it and try to lighten people's load. Um, but there are times where it, it just wears you down and you do get like every, we all feel just kind of beaten down by it a lot of times. <laughs> Yeah, well, I will say this on the, uh, I won't name the dates today that we're talking, but, uh, you know, it's uh, 12 o'clock uh, West Coast time. And, and this morning, just with today's news alone, has felt like a year. Yeah, it uh, really does. It's just, it feels pretty relentless a lot of yeah. the time. It's exhausting, but I, I'm just so grateful that you took time out of your day to to play around with this thing. I mean, I, for me personally, just having a little bit of levity and, and just being able to nerd out and, and talk about fun stuff is, a, is actually therapeutic uh, for me. So I, I could not be more grateful that you have given me uh, this hour of your time. Um, while you're off, you guys are off this week, right? Yeah, we're off this week. We're back Monday. And uh, and thank you for having me do this, Brendan, because it, it lightens my mood, too. And uh, having some being able to geek out about music is always a pleasure for me and, and just to to talk to you is was great so thanks for asking me well you are the best and again uh, I, i'm talking to one of the nicest guys uh in the united states of america uh to a person everyone who's ever known brian knows that he's just a, a generous and awesome and hilarious person so again thank you so much brian thank uh, you Brandon. you got it and for the rest of you uh thank you so much for sticking with us we are growing exponentially we've got some big 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 uh guests coming down the line Uh, and some punk rock icons. So until the next time, cats and kittens. If it's a temple